Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast... I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Hi, today I'm joined by a lady who has a fantastic knowledge of old Jewish London and what life was like in the East End. My name's Diane Burstein and I'm a qualified London Blue Badge tour guide. My website is www.secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. So have a look at that to find out about the tours I do. And if you would like to contact me and join my mailing list, it's Diane, D-I-A-N-E, at secretlondonwalkingtours.co.uk. You can also follow me on TikTok, Twitter, and that is at Guide Diane. Well, Diane, it's lovely to see you again. Haven't seen you three, four years. Uh, I think the last time we met was in Hampstead in the old Bull and Bush pub. That's right, yes. Great stuff. So today I thought what we do, let's have a little chat um, about sort of old Jewish life in London. Now, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by this subject, I spent 10 years living in Allgate. And naturally enough, um, the Jewish community had a massive influence in that area. That's right, yes. So would you like to tell me some more? Okay. Well, the reason that the Jewish community settled in that area is because it was outside of the city walls, because the city of London used to be surrounded by a wall. And we're going back now to the 17th century when the Jewish people were readmitted to this country because the Jews were expelled by King Edward I in 1290. And before 1290, the Jewish people who were in London, who'd come over with William I, William the Conqueror, back in the 11th century, they would have settled in the area near to where you have Guildhall, St Paul's Cathedral, the centre of the city. When Jewish people came back again, they settled to the east of the City of London, where you have the Bevismark Synagogue today, which is the oldest synagogue not only in London, but in Britain, and that dates back to 1701. So they 
settled just to the east, just outside the city walls. And the reason being that there were restrictions on who could practice trade within the city. You had to be a member of a trade guild. Yes. And so a foreigner who would be banned from the trade guild could be somebody from outside of the city. So it could be someone from the north of England, not only people from overseas. Okay. Now, what sort of um, work or trade did these people turn to then if they were banned from working within the city? Okay. Well, the first Jewish people who came over in the 11th century, they were only allowed to work as moneylenders. But later, you didn't have those restrictions. So in the 1650s, when the Jews were readmitted by Oliver Cromwell, when he was in power, one of the reasons that he readmitted Jews to this country is because he saw that Jewish people had a contribution to pay towards the life of the country. So you had quite well-off Jewish people coming, and they were the Sephardi Jews who hailed from Spain and Portugal. And they worked in all sorts of trades. So they could be surgeons, for example. They would be merchants. They would be business people. And they were the middle classes, really. And would they have stayed in the East End? The reason I'm asking you is, um, on my knowledge uh, travels as a taxi driver, I know there's a Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in Lauderdale Road at Maida yes, Vale. Yes, that's right, yes. And I know there's one in St James's Gardens at Notting Hill. That's right, yes, yes, in the Holland Park area. That's right. Well, those were much, much later. Lauderdale Road, that was built at the end of the 19th century. Ah, OK. And the one in uh, St James's Gardens that you're talking about was built in the very early part of the 20th century. So these were Jewish people who maybe had started off their families in the East End, but they had moved, they'd become prosperous, and they had moved further west. And so they were coming to worship in this new synagogue. So they were building a new synagogue where that community had moved to. So that is now the main synagogue, the one at Lauderdale Road for the Spanish and Portuguese community. And the people who would worship at Bevis Marks today, generally speaking, are people who do not live in the area around Bevis Marks, but a lot of them who are members, their ancestors were members. And so they go along for traditional reasons right. because their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers might have been members there. But people were moving westwards, so that was the obvious place to build a synagogue. And the area around Maidvale, Warwick Avenue, where you've got all those mansion blocks of flats there. They were built for the well-to-do middle classes, but it's quite interesting because the mansion blocks, when they were built, they were called the mansions to attract the middle classes, as opposed to the buildings where the working class ah, people that would make lived. Sense, yes. If you think the words mansion or court, that was to attract middle classes. Well-to-do people were a little bit nervous about moving in because you were sharing an entrance with people who might not be of your class. And also there was this association association of flats with the working classes. However, you had the people who came from the continent and from other countries who didn't have this thing about 
living in flats. They were quite happy to live in these rather grand mansion blocks, if you've ever been into one yes, of those I flats. Yes, I have, yeah. They're enormous with high ceilings, lots of rooms. So yeah. they moved in to those blocks of flats, and those were the sort of people who were worshipping there. You also had Jews in Bayswater. There's a big synagogue yes, in yes. Bayswater, for example. And then the poorer Jews went to a little synagogue in Kensington Park Road in Notting Hill, which doesn't exist anymore. I think its last incarnation was as a private club, a health club. It's yeah, it's down the, the bottom. I know school. it on the right-hand side right. there. That's right, but if you look yeah. very carefully underneath the plasterwork, you can see the Star of David. Right. So there. let's go back to the East End yes. because, as yeah, I say, yeah. my 10 years spent living in Allgate were yes. fabulous. Yeah. Um, and Sandy's Row Synagogue. That's right. Well, that was built for the Dutch Jewish community. So oh, you right. had these okay. different communities. You had the community who their ancestors hailed from Spain and Portugal, although they actually came directly from Holland because during the Spanish Inquisition, the Jews had been thrown out of Spain. Right. And so you also had this other Dutch community who were not Sephardi Jews. and They were more what we'd call today economic migrants because right. a lot of the Jewish people who came to the East End, particularly the Ashkenazi Jews who came from the cold countries, Germany, Russia, Poland, were coming to escape persecution right. in their countries. And so we have these Dutch Jews who have come for a better life and they are working as diamond merchants because the diamond trade at Hatton Garden, you've still got a lot of yes, Jewish people working in definitely. the diamond trade. So the diamond trade was associated with Holland and so you had Jewish people coming over from Holland working in the diamond trade and they also worked as cigar makers and citrus fruit sellers. And of course the Spitalfields Market, which is a place where you now might go to get antiques, bric-a-brac, um, takeaway food, food, designer clothes, that used to be a fruit and vegetable and flower market. Yeah, it's moved out to Leighton so, now. Exactly. So you had the fruit sellers who would be based there. So you had jewellery shops also nearby in Cutler's Gardens where you might have some of the Dutch people live. So that Sandy's Row started off as a community for Dutch people, came over in the 1850s. That synagogue used to be a French Huguenot chapel because the French Huguenots were the first group of immigrants that came to that area of the East End of London. So Sandy's Rose is on the edge of the city and the East End yes. of London. And today, the people who worship there wouldn't necessarily be of D Dutch extraction. Right, I understand. But they would okay, originally. Okay, now uh, moving on to sort of benevolence. Yes, yes. Um, I know that there were a lot of sort of benevolent societies. and, and yes. um Can we just sort of talk through, I believe there was a, a Jewish hospital in the East End, am That's I right? That's right, yes, yes. You had Jewish hospital, which was in the Stepney Green area. You had soup kitchens and you could still see, if you go to Broome Street, it's luxury apartments now, but you still see the facade from 1902 that says soup kitchen for the Jewish poor. There is a pub in Middlesex Street, which has a blue plaque on it. And the blue plaque tells you that this used to be the headquarters of the Jewish Board of Guardians. Now, you had a non-Jewish Board of Guardians as well, which administered the poor law and the workhouses. So the Jewish Board of Guardians, very Victorian sounding name. And this would be the Jewish people who had come over earlier, established themselves 
had a bit of money and they were going to do something for the new immigrants who were less fortunate. So you had families like the Rothschilds and other well-to-do families, the Montefiores. They would be involved in these sorts of organisations. So the Jewish Board of Guardians in later years developed into an organisation called Jewish Care that is still going today. Yes, I believe they've got a place in Golders Green. That's right. And that's a modern social care organisation. But they started off in the East End of London, in Middlesex Street, which of course used to be Petticoat Lane. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, Now, you mentioned that these people came from various parts of Europe. So presumably there wouldn't be a food that you would say is distinctly Jewish and we're right there. Would it be a mixture? Well, it would be a mixture, yes. But for example, bagels or bagels, as you would say if you hailed from Poland, they came from Poland originally. And... I was reading that the original Beigels were more like the pretzels that you get if you go to Poland today yes. and you get all those stands on the streets oh, okay. and they're selling pretzels. But then later the consti- cons- consistency changed and they became the Beigels that we know today. But now people tend to say bagels, which is more of an American pronunciation. Yes, New York. And you've still got two bagel bakeries, which you will find along Brick Lane, which aren't kosher. So the fillings in there won't necessarily be kosher, but they are Jewish owned. Very popular with taxi drivers. Absolutely, keeping the taxi tradition Taxi drivers alive. and nightclubbers because they're <laughs> We'll move open, on to taxi drivers in a minute, night. Diane. I've yes, got a few right. questions I'm dying yes. to ask you. Yes. Can we just talk about uh, Jewish restaurants in the East End? That's right. Well, the most famous one, of course, was Bloom's because that used to be, that came along in the 1930s and it closed in the 1980s. And there's a burger restaurant, takeaway yes, burger restaurant restaurant on the site there today. And the reason that closed, actually, is because when it was inspected, they found something that wasn't quite kosher in the kitchen. So it was actually closed down by the Beth Din, which is the organisation that inspects the Jewish kitchens. They probably would have closed anyway because the Jewish community had moved away by the 1980s. And this is one of the sad things, that the Jewish restaurants that there were closed down. And remember that in the early days, people didn't used to go out to eat in the same way that they do today. So you would have these small restaurants and cafes, but they've largely closed down. So you can't find the kosher food there. You will find Rinkoff's Bakery, though. Oh, yeah, Rinkoff's. Yeah, and they date back to 1911. Do they? And if you go down Valance Road, which isn't where their original shop was. That was opened more recently by the Rinkoff family, but there are still Rinkoffs working there today. And on the side of that shop, they've got a piece of street art which shows the original Mr Rinkoff with a wonderful Edwardian moustache from 1911. And then they have another place in O'Leary Square, which is just off the Mile End Road in the middle of the Ocean I know Estate, it well. yes. which you probably know well. And uh, they also supply um, a lot of the big stores and food halls and that sort oh, of right. thing. Oh, right, I wasn't so aware of just, that. But that's right. Yes. yes, so they one that stayed in the area. Now, a few minutes ago, we alluded to people moving out from the East End. You yes. said Bloom's closed down. It would have yes. probably closed anyway because yes. people were moving out. Let's yeah. talk about moving out. Where did the Jewish community move to? Well, initially, people would go to places like Hackney, 
and Stoke Newington. Um, you had Jewish communities in places that don't today, like Islington, for example, used to have a Jewish community and synagogue, which they don't have I wasn't aware today, of but they did, at, they did at one time. So people moved out, but not too far out. Uh, my grandfather, who came over from Poland when he was 13 years old and was based in the East End of London, as were many Jewish families who came from Russia and Poland, escaping the pogroms at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. He came initially to Camden Town, which wasn't a Jewish area, to a house which is right on the spot where we're recording this. Ah, Royal College, College Street. Royal College Street, yes. And uh, then went to Edgware. And it was places like Edgware, Golders Green, Hendon, and then in northeast London, Redbridge, Gants Hill, and Ilford. And it was part of a general movement. It wasn't only Jewish people, it would be other people who lived in inner London areas. And they moved out to the suburbs. So a lot of Jewish people went to either Essex or Middlesex, those areas which aren't Essex and Middlesex, but were. Yes, in, I know exactly what in, you mean. In yeah. the past. So they went there in the same way that people, if you were living in somewhere like Stockwell or Brixton, you might go out towards Kent, yeah. for example. So that was a general trajectory of people. And they went because if you made a little bit of money, you wanted to get out of the East End of London. The East End then was very different to the East End as it is now, which is much more socially mixed than it was then. So today, you've got some quite wealthy people living in the beautiful Georgian houses yes, in Spitalfields, for example. But it wasn't like that. It was very poor. There was no green space. People wanted a garden. They just had a backyard or maybe they were living in flats. They didn't have green space. So people wanted green space. They wanted somewhere that was bigger and more spacious. Yeah, naturally, their so aspirations would have moved them aspirations out. Nowadays, people don't aspire to going to the suburbs. The suburbs is where you go if you can't afford to live in London. Yeah, it's London. funny how things but change. But people did aspire to go to the suburbs. And now those suburbs where the Jewish people went, Jewish people are are moving further out. So if they were in Ilford, for example, or Gants Hill, they might be going out to places like Westcliff, Lee-on-the-Sea, those sorts of I places. Understand. If they lived in Edgware or Harrow or Kenton or Wembley Park, it's Hertfordshire that they're heading for, Elstree. Boreham Wood, Radlett, they yeah. have Upwardly mobile. Jewish communities. That's right, yeah. yes. Now, um, I always noticed that there was a lot of sort of East End Jewish tailors as well. Yes, yes. And that was a big source of employment. That's right. Well, many of them had worked as tailors, of course, where they came from. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have seen Fiddler on the Roof and yeah, you've got the yeah. character Mottle the Tailor. And when they all have to leave at the end of that musical, you see him clutching his sewing machine. Well, that's exactly what people did. I mean, you know, we see at the moment people leaving Ukraine and they're just going with a few possessions. And of course, you'd grab the sewing machine because that's how you made your living. So people worked as tailors and they worked in the East End, but they also went to the West End. And if you think of the area around the back of Oxford Street, Titchfield Street, Margaret Street, the areas of Soho and Fitzrovia, there were Jewish communities there. 
as well. So you had tailors in that area who were doing a lot of the tailoring and the outwork for Savile Row. And then you also had the Jewish tailors in the East End. And one of my fellow tour guides who started off as a policeman, and when he was a young policeman on the beat in the 1960s and 70s, he said that you would still hear the whirring of the sewing machines as you walked along those streets of Spitalfields and Whitechapel. And of course, then the community from Bangladesh who came in, many of those people worked as tailors as well. They were sweatshop industries. So you weren't making the money. It was the middleman who was making money. Same with the furniture industry, which was more around Shoreditch and Hackney Road there. And there... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was the middlemen. It was the people who were selling the furniture down the Tottenham Court Road that were making the money or in the furniture wholesalers around Great Eastern Street. But the tailors and the furniture makers who were working away in their workshops, they were working under these sweatshop conditions and they weren't making a lot of money. So maybe if you moved into the West End, you could make a little bit more if you yeah. got into a good dressmakers that uh, treated you a bit better. But uh, yes, a lot yeah. of Jewish people work as tailors. My trade. Yeah. I'm a licensed London taxi driver yes. or black yeah. cab driver, yes. as we're yeah. known colloquially. Um, a lot of my friends and colleagues live in an area we nickname as Green Badge Valley, yeah. which is sort of Clay Hall and Gants Hill. Yes, yeah. 
How did the Jewish association with the London taxi trade begin? Well, I think it was the same way that a lot of Jewish people went out on their own in business. Because if you think about immigrant communities, you go to another country to live and there will be prejudice. And so you'll find difficulty finding employment. And that's why so many Jewish people changed their name. The Grudzinskis became the Gordons, the Hershkovitzes became the Harrises. You anglicised your name if you wanted to get a job in an office or in the civil service or in the bank or something like that. But a lot of people had great difficulty, so they went into self-employment. They went on to market stalls, and then if you made enough money, maybe you opened your own shop. And I think because a taxi driver is self-employed, that was one of the things that people aspired to. So they'd save up. Of course, you have to save up to buy your taxi. So well, and also you've got to complete the knowledge before you right, get anywhere near the taxi, the which can be two but to I three years ago. I think it was the idea of being your own boss and in charge of your own, and also of being in charge of your own destiny. Because, of course, if you have to suddenly flee your country, um, when you were in that country where you were being persecuted or treated as a second-class citizen, you weren't in charge of your own destiny. So you've come over to England, London, you're going to start a new life. And that's one of the things you want. And as a self-employed person, you want to be in charge of your own destiny. And for the same reason, of course, nowadays, if you hop into a cab, it probably won't be a Jewish cab driver, but it might be somebody who's arrived from the Middle East, from Bangladesh, from... Well, it's interesting you say that. Um, When I ran the Knowledge Training Centre... Um, we used annually surveyed our students. Yes. And the demographic of where people came from was changing rapidly. Yes. And in my last survey, which I have to say was probably 10 years ago, 40% of my students were born overseas and a large amount came from sort of uh, the northern North Africa. Yes. Um, and the, we did have a few from Eastern Europe, but yeah. the large percentage were sort of Algerian, um you know, Moroccan, that part of the world. So I suppose, like anything, the taxi trade is reflective of immigration into the country. That's right, yes, yes. And I think it's this whole thing of wanting to be self-employed, wanting to be in business on your own. Of course, the children of the Jewish immigrants who went out and got an education, because for most immigrant families, education is really important. So the parents would have aspired for their children to get a better job. And the idea was go into higher education, go to university, get a degree and go into the professions. Like law and doctors. Exactly, that's right. So that became the thing not only for Jewish families, for Asian families as well, for example. Yeah. Right. Now, let's talk about um, celebrities from the East End. Yes, yes. Tell me some people who made it big. Household well, names. Lionel Beagleiter, better known as Lionel Bart, I've heard who, of, of course, uh, was a wonderful composer who wrote uh, songs like Living Doll, 
for Cliff Richard and Little White Bull for Tommy Steele. He was in a, a group with Tommy Steele uh, in the early that. days when Tommy Steele was Tommy Hicks, yes. But, of course, he's best known for the musical Oliver and... He lived in Princelet Street in Spitalfields in the East End of London. Joe Loss, the band leader. Heard of You'll him as remember well. him. He was in that area as well. And um, a man called Hyam Reuben Weintrop, better known as Bud Flanagan, oh, who um, became part of a comedy group called The Crazy Gang, who had a very successful show that ran for years at the Victoria Palace and also at the London Palladium. Do you know that Bud Flanagan and did the knowledge and he also held a cab driver's licence oh, just he? as a backup in case anything went wrong. Oh, right. Oh, that's clever of him, isn't yeah, he? And absolutely. I don't suppose he ever needed to do no, that. No, I don't think he Because he was working did. right to the end and, of course, most people know him for singing the theme tune for Dad's Army, which yeah. wasn't written during the war. It was written especially for that TV series. And you see, that's an example of someone changing his name. You changed your name if you went into show business. So you had um, the Winogradsky family who became the Grades, Lou and Leslie Grades, who were film producers and television producers. And then the other brother changed his name to Delfont and became Bernard Delfont. And when he went into the House of Lords, his family had lived on Stepney Green and then later went to London's first London County Council council estate, which was the boundary estate in Shoreditch. But because they'd lived in Stepney Green before, he called himself Lord Delfont of Stepney Green. Marvelous. You'll see a blue plaque to him <laughs> on the Prince of Wales Theatre, yeah. Lord Delfont of Stepney Green. And then you had Israel Zangwill, who was known as the Jewish Dickens because he wrote about the poverty. He wrote The Children of the Ghetto, which was all about the people who he called the Greeners, the people who arrived, and they were green. They didn't know the ropes. And many of them, uh, you often hear this story about people who arrived in the port cities. So it might be London, it might be Liverpool, it might be Hull. And they thought that they bought a passage to America. And they ended up in either London, Hull, Manchester, I bet Glasgow. They soon found out but, they weren't in America. Yeah, that's right. But they didn't for a while because everybody was speaking in Yiddish. Oh, of course. You see? Yeah. So, um, which was a mixture of Hebrew and German. Yeah. So you, it took a while to realise. And of course, what could you do? You didn't have any money to go anywhere else. And this is another reason why Jewish people went to the East End later. They arrived on the boat train which came from, you got the boat coming from the Hook of Holland to Harwich, and then you got the boat train into Liverpool Street. So Spitalfields and Whitechapel, yeah, very close east to the there. You also came because the rents were cheap to the east end of London, or you might have arrived by boat at Iron Gate Stairs, which was just east of Tower Bridge, and then you came in to the east end of London. So people came to this area because it was cheap and you couldn't afford to go anywhere else. So you stayed, even though you'd intended to uh, go to New York. And you did have Yiddish theatre in the east end oh, of London. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. Yes. Oh, you did, yeah, yeah. yes. So they, they had their own sort of entertainment. That's right. So um, you had the older generations, like my mother's mother was born in England, but her grandmother came from Russia and always spoke Yiddish and they had to speak to her 
in Yiddish. So right. she didn't learn the language. So the Yiddish theatre was really important. And you had an actor called Mayat Zelnicker and his daughter Anna, who was alive until relatively recently telling stories of her days in the Yiddish theatre. You had the Adler family who went to America because there was a big accident at their theatre, which used to be in Princelet Street. And this happened at a lot of theatres, not just this one. People were always panicking about fire because theatres were always burning down. You didn't have the strict fire regulations that you have today. So what happened so there then? what happened is someone shouted fire and everyone rushed out of the building and panicked and people were crushed and killed oh, in the crush. And the Adlers were so upset that they moved away. So you had Yiddish theatre and nowadays there aren't many theatres in the East End of London, but you did. You had uh, Lusby's Music Hall, you had the Pavilion Theatre, so you had theatres on the Mile End Road, you had theatre on the White Chapel Road and this is where you would go to see variety shows and there was obviously a lot of employment in Yiddish theatre because there's a lovely story about Tommy Twinder who wasn't Jewish, he came from Streatham, um, but... He knew that he could get extra work when he was a young up-and-coming comedian if he learned to do his act in Yiddish. So apparently he learned it parrot fashion and got a local rabbi to test him and to write him a letter of reference. But I don't know what he did if he got hecklers, because if somebody <laughs> heckled him in Yiddish, he probably wouldn't know <laughs> what, they, what they were uh, saying. But yeah. the Adlers, where before they went, they used to put on high-quality drama, Shakespeare and Chekhov. So oh, okay. you would have comedi comedians telling jokes in Yiddish, but you would also have this high-quality drama that was being performed. But then, of course, younger generations didn't want the Yiddish theatre any no. longer. And now you don't really hear, it's quite interesting amongst, uh, when I say younger generations, really people under the age of 70 I'm talking about now, you will not hear people use the Jewish expressions in the same way that my parents or grandparents generation would do but there's still the odd word like schlep for example oh, if I'm right. going to drag over there that you'll sometimes hear people use yeah. but you don't hear those Yiddish expressions as much as you uh, did in the past so right. it is sadly something that has uh, has died out but of course it used to be very strong in the East End of London. Did sport play any part of uh, Jewish East End life? Well, boxing was very much a part of Jewish East End life and East End life generally because there were a number of boys' clubs around and the idea was to keep people off the street. And also self-defence was important. Remember, you had Mosley and his black shirts who were trying to raise support and you'd see them regularly uh, on their soapboxes outside the Salmon and Ball pub, which is just by Bethnal Green yeah, I know it well, Station. Yeah. And uh, I was invited to meet um, a lady who's now over 100, who's still living in the oh, East End, wow. who a lady called Beatty Orwell, who was a neighbour of um, uh, one of the men who comes on my tours. And he says, oh, I want you to come and meet my neighbour. And this was a few years ago. And she was talking about growing up in the East End. And if you go to Brick Lane, you've got the old Truman's Brewery about 
three quarters of the way up Brick Lane. And there's a walkway that linked the two sides of the brewery that is still there. And she said that her mother always used to tell her not to go beyond that walkway going up towards um, Shoreditch because that is where you would sometimes encounter trouble from Mosley oh, and the Black fascists. Shirts and the followers. So right. the young boys were encouraged to be able to box and defend themselves. Uh, but this goes back a long way. If you go to Bethnal Green, also near the station, there's Paradise Row there. You know it, and yeah. And on Paradise Row, there is a blue plaque to Daniel Mendoza, the boxer, and he came from a Sephardi Jewish family. In fact, he was buried in the cemetery that you will find behind Queen Mary University on the Mile End Road. And there's a plaque to him. And he started boxing because he was working for a shopkeeper who would sometimes be the butt of anti-Semitic taunts. And so he would say, you know, come here and say that to me. And he learned to defend his employer and defend himself. And then later, he was very much revered because he became the champion of all England. This was bare knuckle fighting. And he fought under the name Mendoza the Jew, and he opened a boxing academy in the city of London and wrote a book about the art of boxing. And Brilliant. one of his descendants was Peter Sellers, whose mother was Jewish. And oh, apparently wow. Peter Sellers always had a picture wherever he was living on the wall of Daniel Mendoza he was very proud of. So there were many others. There was a man called Jack Kidberg who has a plaque along Cable Street on one of the blocks of flats on the site where he lived. So boxing was very big. And then there were Jewish boys and girls clubs that opened up. And in these clubs, there would always be a sporting time, a sporting side. They would have their football teams, for example. So uh, although Jewish people aren't necessarily very much associated with the sport, you did have people who were um, doing sport as a hobby and you did have these clubs that had all sorts of activities going on. So it could be drama, it could be a choir, it could be sport. Yeah, just general yes, activities for right. the community activities. to be involved and in. And some of those club buildings could still be found in the East End. So there was a club called the Brady Club, which used to be in Brady Street. And the Brady Girls Club was rebuilt in the 1930s in Hanbury Street. And that building is still there today as a community centre. And the Girls Club was run by this very formidable woman called Miriam Moses. And Miriam Moses, um, when a lot of her girls were being bombed out of their homes during the Second World War, would give them shelter in the club. So she was almost a mother figure to families in the East End of London. And uh, many people went to that club. So that was one of the famous clubs. And then if you go to a street called Henrique Street, which that. is off the commercial road, the there's a building there. you probably know, Bernard Barron House, which is yeah. now flats, but it is still standing. And uh, Bernard Barron, um, he was somebody who gave money towards this building. But you had Basil Henriques and his wife Rose, who also ran a club that was based in that 
building. And these and clubs were for, for, for sort of young Jewish these lads. These clubs and were for young girls. Jewish lads and girls, and many people met their life partners in these clubs. Right. And in fact, the club that was based there, which funnily enough, and I always wondered why you had a Jewish club that was named after a saint, St. George's. But of course, near there, you had St. George's in the East. Well, church. yeah, that was a district and, and a big the church. district yeah. was known as St. George's. Yeah. And they had a big uh, reunion that uh, happened in the Troxy Cinema, which is still standing yeah, on the commercial the Troxy, yeah. road, which is now an events venue, as I'm sure sure you know. Yes. And they had a big reunion of, of all their Brilliant. members uh, quite recently going there to yeah. uh, reminisce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of, on Facebook, you'll find numerous Jewish East End reminiscence sites where... Well, that's what I was going to sort of finish with, really. Yeah. Um, Obviously, the East End has changed and it's constantly changing. Yes. You yeah. know, as immigrant groups move in and yeah, then yeah, yeah. earn enough to sort of perhaps move out. Although, having said that, as you said, to live in the East End now is very expensive. Yes. Um, but so these groups all loosely keep in touch with each other through... Well, I think it's since uh, the advent of Facebook that a lot of people have reunited right. again. So you've got Facebook groups for all sorts of areas oh, of London. And there are several for the Jewish East End that you will find. And it's quite interesting because although people can wait to get away from these areas, now they're all reminiscing about the good old days and it's quite interesting because a friend of mine um she isn't jewish but her husband is and his mother for her 90th birthday they organized a guided walk and asked me to do it now obviously um she wasn't going to be walking around but they hired a wheelchair for her to go round and I said, give me a list of all the addresses that she remembers. And in those days, people were always moving. If the landlord put up the rent, you just moved somewhere else. So there were lots of addresses. Some of the buildings were still there. She met her husband at the building that was the Henriques Street Club. So that was still there. Other buildings weren't there any longer. But at the end of this tour, she said that even when... It had changed out of all recognition. She could look at a building and she said, just the street sign brought back the memories. And although a lot of it has changed, there are still many, many buildings associated with the East End. And of course, the one that's possibly the most famous uh, that's associated with the Jewish East End is a building that has been a Huguenot chapel. It's been a Wesleyan chapel. It's been the home of an organisation that tried to convert the Jews to Christianity. It's been a synagogue and now it's a mosque. And that is at the top of Fournier Street in Spitalfield. And that really represents all the different Jewish groups, but also... Yeah, how the area has changed and developed. And it dates back, that building, to 1743. Brilliant. Diane... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have another wander around the East End. I haven't been round there much since I moved away, but after speaking to you, I think I'm going to have a little stroll around there and have a little look. It's been absolutely wonderful to hear you speak again. And uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.